Okay, so we'll be doing it from Luke 14, verses 25 to 34. Okay. Large crowds were traveling with, oh, sorry. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and he was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men or to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit for neither for the soil for the or for the new manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's okay, I won't be speaking too long either. All right, well, I'm going to lead us in prayer and then we'll think about this passage together. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for this time that we share together now as your people. We thank you that you've worked in our hearts to bring us even to this point where we can hear your word proclaimed. And Lord, we pray that we'd understand it more clearly and we ask for your help to be the kind of people that you want us to be and to respond in the right way to it. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, decisions, decisions. American poet Robert Frost wrote a poem once called The Road Not Taken. Now, some of you might be familiar with it. It's, he's writing about a choice between two roads to travel on. And it's not a very long poem. So even if you don't like poetry, you're just gonna, I'll have to, you'll have to suffer there while I inflict it upon you uh, because I'm going to read it out. It says, Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry I could not travel both. And be one traveller, long I stood, and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other, just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that, the passing there had worn them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves, no step, had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less travelled by. And that has made all the difference. There you go, that's Robert Frost, who took the road less travelled, and it made all the difference to him. But what's he actually talking about? Is he talking about a bushwalk where he's reflecting on little paths he could go down and wonder if he'd go on that bushwalk again? Or is he talking about making choices in life? 
Well, I think that's what he's talking about. I think he's talking about how we all have to make decisions. And when we make decisions, there are consequences. And we live with the consequences and we can't turn the clock back. I like this poem because it helps me also as we think about this bit of the Bible that we come to because Jesus confronts us with decisions to make as well. He confronts people with their path in life and questioned about whether we're willing to follow him, whether we're going to take that path. Well, at this point in the story, Jesus, on his way to Jerusalem, has just spent time indoors at the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees. They've been having a feast and it's been an occasion where it's raised the topic about the feast at the kingdom of God at the end of the ages. And Jesus used that occasion to start to warn uh, some of the people there that even though they thought they were important, the message was that there might be a whole lot of people in the feast at the kingdom of God at the end who they didn't expect would be there. And the other side of that coin was that there would be some who thought they'd be there, but because of their rejection of Jesus, would find that they might be the ones who are missing out. Well, now at this stage in the story, we see that many people are starting to weigh up who Jesus is and weigh up his message. And the scene now moves from inside to outside, as we see in verse 25 that uh, Jesus is on his journey to Jerusalem and large crowds begin to follow him. We see that in verse 25. And he starts to raise the bar for those who would be his disciples. The great crowds accompany him because presumably he's gained currency with the people through his healings, miraculous signs, and also because he's fed a lot of people, 4,000, then 5,000. But what kind of followers does Jesus really want? What kind of disciples does he want to have coming after him? Well, on his road to Jerusalem, people continued to listen to Jesus, to think about who he was, and they started to grapple with his message about how God's plans are finding their fulfilment in him and his work. And we continue to see that crowds get divided between those who reject Jesus, but also those who embrace Jesus and enjoy the life that comes from him through his forgiveness. But as he speaks to the crowd about discipleship, he uses some very strong language. And he uses strong language to test them in verse 26. So I'll read it from there if you're following along. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, hate is a strong word, isn't it? It means detest or abhor. I hate you is a sentence that we don't like to hear and it's the sort of thing that can be said that can reduce us to tears as well. And yet that's the word that Jesus uses to describe the kind of attitude that his disciples are to have to their own family or to their own life if they are to be his disciples. Now if you don't like your family and you don't like your own life, if you think your family's rotten and you're, well, don't get too excited yet. That's not quite what he has in mind. 
You might, not, you might think, oh, good, he's, he's talking to me. No, um, Jesus likes to use language in a very stark way in order to make a point, and that's the case here also. We see that he uses language in a fairly um, stark way in other passages too. Remember when he says, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel? I really swallow a camel. Hmm, good luck. Uh, well, we get the idea that some people are overlooking the big things and yet they're getting uptight about trivial things. They don't really swallow camels. It's, it's called hyperbole in English and it means a big exaggeration and the same kind of things being said here. And we know that because the other parts of the Bible remind us that Jesus says, love your neighbour as yourself. In fact, love your enemies. In fact, this is how you'll be known because you do love your neighbour. You'll be known as Christians because of your love. And so we see that he's just using his language here as a big exaggeration to say you have to hate your family and your life. But he does use that language to make the point. And the point is we've got to compare how much we are devoted to him. Think about the most important people in your life. Think of who you've got the strongest allegiance to. Who are you going to leave your inheritance to? Are you going to leave it to me? Probably not. Who comes to mind? Well, Jesus says these are the people that have got to even occupy a lesser place in your life. They've got to come a distant second compared to your allegiance and love for Jesus. He's got to occupy a much higher place in your life. He's saying if we're going to be his followers... Even our own devotion to our own lives must rank way down the list in comparison to the place that he should hold in our lives. Well, the challenge is whether we're willing to put him first, be his disciples and follow his challenge. Jesus then changes tack slightly and describes the life he calls his followers to, and the symbol gives us the message in verse 27, if you're reading on. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, it's possible, isn't it, for us to get a bit desensitised about the cross? Uh, in our day and age, the cross is commonplace uh, on headstones at the side of the road when we drive along. Uh, in, in graveyards, we see the cross on jewellery, even on T-shirts. Now, Helen's not here today because she's at home sick. Uh, when I was reading this to her last night because she wanted to hear the sermon, I said, I even saw one printed on a large teenager... <laughs> I even saw a cross printed on a large teenager yesterday. No, but I meant I even saw a large cross printed on a teenager, not printed on a large teenager. That's right. So there I was driving along and there's a teenager with a large cross on their shirt. Now, at one level... We've lost a little bit of the shock of the cross, haven't we? Imagine if we saw, you know, um, little girls going to the disco with electric chairs in their earrings, on their, in their earrings, or somebody with a, a guillotine around their chain, you know, perhaps a, a hangman's noose on their shirt. We'd start to think, you know, we'd start to wonder a bit about those people. But those are the, the, the symbols we're more familiar with, aren't they, when it comes to thinking about death. Well, the cross, uh, is, it, it was shocking still in Jesus' time. So anybody who was uh, going to be carrying their cross, that was a sign 
that soon they'd be dying. That was what was going to come next. Jesus is saying we can't be his disciple unless we're willing to die to our own lives and live for him. It's a tough call, isn't it? I wonder what the crowds thought of this conversation when he was speaking like this. What they were thinking as Jesus said this kind of thing. It'd be a bit like, you know, we've, we're in the new electorate of Cowper these days. We're no longer in Lynn. David Gillespie is a thing of the past for us. We've got Luke Hartsuka, who's now our new Member of Parliament. Imagine if Luke Hartsuka was down at Town Green on the, on the grass there with a microphone in hand and a loudspeaker standing there saying, if you're going to vote for me, you're voting to lose your homes and your families. You're asking for higher taxes and lower wages. You're deciding in favour of losing all that you love best. So come on, who's on my side? Now, if Luke was standing there saying those kinds of things, people would be thinking, this is ridiculous. You know, they'd be so shocked they wouldn't even have their tomatoes ready to throw at him. They'd be just shocked at what's going on. Well, Jesus is giving the crowds a very stark message as well. But the difference is, Jesus is actually leading us somewhere. He's actually leading us somewhere valuable. He's offering us life under his kingship. He's offering us forgiveness and life in his kingdom both now and forevermore. And bearing the cross in the time of those first followers uh, was more than just a figure of speech. People talk about, oh, we, we carry our cross, we bear our cross. For those people, it might have been closer to the reality. They would have found themselves following Jesus and odd, at odds with their fellow countrymen. And some of the lessons from church history have taught us that it can come at a great cost to be a follower of Jesus. Now, our society seems probably somewhat less brutal than Roman society. Yet, if we stand with Jesus, and even if we take stands on issues from a Christian point of view, we might find that also that comes at a price for us as well. Uh, we stand to be, well, the common word is to be marginalised, but we could be ridiculed or insulted, ostracised. Uh, people always make fun of Christians in the letters to the editor in the newspapers. Christian ministers are always sent up as buffoons in TV programs. Uh, we're called bigots, narrow-minded. Uh, we stand to be those who are scorned by our society and not necessarily the life of the party or the centre of the crowd. And so despite the fact that we might not be bearing a physical cross, uh, we might find it harder to get on with some people. And so that comes at a bit of a price for us as well at times. Yet that's the challenge of standing with Jesus. And unless we're prepared to do that, we can't be his disciples. That's what he says in those repeated refrains in verse 26, 27 and 33. Such a person cannot be my disciple. Verse 27, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Verse 33, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple disciples. Well, why? Well, he's driving the point home that it's only the people that are prepared to follow him wholeheartedly 
are the ones who really do stand as Christians, they really do stand as his people. If people aren't willing to follow him in a genuine way and wholeheartedly, then as they say in America from baseball, they don't even get off first base. But with such a big call like that, it leaves us asking a few questions, doesn't it? Like, who does Jesus think he is to be asking for that kind of allegiance? We're more familiar with the challenge to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul and with all our might. Well, once we've tried to do that, is there anything left over to devote to Jesus? Well, I suppose his words really only make sense to us, don't they? When we realise that Jesus wasn't just a man. Even though he's been sung that way in the musical Jesus Christ Superstar by the character Mary Magdalene in the song I Don't Know How to Love Him, she says, he's a man, he's just a man. I won't sing the rest of the song to you, you can listen to it on the iTunes at home. Yet God's word presents a very different picture of Jesus. Which man can turn water into wine? Uh, which man can calm the wind and the waves or raise the dead? Well, it's true, he was a man. He did eat fish, he slept, he cried and he bled and died, but he wasn't just a man. It's difficult to categorise him, but the Bible teaches that he has two nature, that he was very God and very man. In fact, this is how the... Um, those who crafted our Westminster Confession, it's good to hear from the Confession sometimes of how they've summarised what the Bible teaches. Uh, in chapter 8, verse um, 2, it says, after speaking about Jesus being born of the Virgin Mary, so that two whole, perfect and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person. It's deep stuff, isn't it? Without conversion, composition or confusion although I must say I'm finding some of this confusing, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. It's deep waters, friends. God's word teaches us that Jesus has authority and he calls us to follow him with wholehearted devotion because he was the God-man. It's not idolatry to give him that kind of devotion. He's the God-man who visited his people in order to bring about complete salvation from sin by dying for sins on a cross and rising again. And for those who repent and live with him as their king, the promise is they will receive eternal life. They will receive forgiveness. They won't be put to shame on judgment day. And so Jesus doesn't want people to follow him willy-nilly. In John's Gospel, we're reminded that some people decided to follow Jesus because he just fed them a whole lot of food. And they chased him around the lake and asked him again, you know, have you got, have you got some food for us? He said, you're only here to see me because of the loaves. You only want the bread. Well, he doesn't want that kind of disciple. I think in Southeast Asia, at times they call them rice Christians where people just turn up to uh, Christian events just to get fed some food. It's a good question about whether they want to know Jesus as Lord and Saviour or not. Well, Jesus wants us to weigh up our willingness to follow him 
and to see our commitment through to following him as as our Lord and Saviour. And he does that by offering us two illustrations. And the first one is from the building industry. And he says in verse 28, Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay a foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. And so we see that even in everyday life, when important decisions are made, it's good for people to figure out from the very start whether they can see the task through. And there's consequences if they can't. The builder of that tower who couldn't complete the job was laughed at. Uh He couldn't finish the job. Well, it's important to see things through and we've got to weigh up that. The second illustration comes from the battlefield in verse 31. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples, says Jesus. Well, if the king could see the writing on the wall, so to speak, he could see that a defeat's likely, then he'd take some early action and ask for some terms of peace. The king in that illustration weighs up his choice about whether to go to war or not pretty early on. And the take-home message for Jesus towards us is that we've got to weigh up the cost of following him too. And not to be like those fickle followers who just followed him for bread and then deserted him. The challenge is to follow through if we're going to be his disciples. Well, that brings us to the final section which closes with a salt parable in verse 34 and 35. Let me read that to you. Salt is good... But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Well, how's this saying about salt connected with the things that Jesus has spoken about just above? Well, I wonder if Jesus is talking about those who say that they're his disciples... But in practice, they're not really genuine. People like the ones who followed him for bread, but they weren't really serious followers. What kind of followers of Christ were they really like? Were they people who were keen to wage war against their sin and have that struggle? Were they zealous to keep in step with the Spirit of the Lord and bear the fruit of the Spirit? Would they be prepared to give a reason for the hope that they have in Christ when people ask them about that hope? Would they be the ones who put their family second and Christ first, put their own life second and Christ first? Would these people have been the salt of the world as followers of Christ? Or would they have been people who just took on the name of Jesus but actually didn't even try to live out what they professed? And so instead they might have brought more shame upon Jesus' name than good. Calling themselves Christians but not really living as Christians. 
Robert Frost took the road less travelled and that made all the difference to him. But Jesus also talks about taking paths too. And he gives even better advice than Robert Frost. Enter through the narrow gate, he says. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Two roads diverge before us today. Which road will you and I take? The broad road that leads to destruction? Well, I hope not. That's not, the, that's not the application point, friends. What about the narrow road that leads to life? Well, may we, through God's grace, each day choose Christ and choose the life that he gives as we take that narrow road that leads to life. May God help us to do that today and every day. Let us pray. And Lord God, we do give you thanks for uh, your goodness in giving us uh, even this challenge to uh, live with Jesus as our King, to be willing to stand with him and to enjoy life as your heirs in your kingdom. Even though it may cost us something in this age. We know this age and all the difficulties in it are passing away. We give you thanks that Jesus is leading us somewhere good. And so, Lord, we do pray for our steadfastness. We pray that you'd help us uh, to not take these things taught in your word for granted, uh, not to belittle them, but to uh, see that these are really pearls of wisdom that we need to hold on to. And so, Lord, we do thank you for this challenge today as we think about uh, making sure that we are genuine followers of Jesus, our Lord and Saviour, and we pray that you'd help us uh, to put him first in our lives and everything else second. And we pray for your help to do this, to be faithful to you, and we do thank you for your steadfastness in helping us continue. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.